Well, I'd encourage you to once again turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, that's okay. The passage for this morning is printed in the insert in the center of your bulletin. There is also a black ESV Bible that is sitting on the back table. If you are here this morning and you don't have a copy of God's Word, please take that Bible. We want you to have a copy of God's Word that you might read it, that you might know it. It's our gift to you. We have been studying the book of Nehemiah here uh, at Ascension Presbyterian for the last several weeks. Those of you who are new to us, either visiting or haven't been around for a while, Nehemiah is a wonderful book about a massive rebuilding project. It deals primarily with a city, a city that's being rebuilt, and even more specifically than that, it deals primarily with a wall, a wall that's being rebuilt. But this morning, as in two weeks ago, when we last looked at the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is more than a city. Nehemiah is more about more than a city. It's about more than a wall. It's also about a people. You remember, those of you who were here two weeks ago when we last opened up the book of Nehemiah, that the wall around Jerusalem is finished. But the work, the work is far from being done. You see, just like the walls, after many years of neglect needed repairing, so after many years of neglect, there is a people that need to be Rebuilt and a way of life that needs to be reestablished now that the city is going up. And it was a transition that we began seeing in chapters 7 and 11, which is where we were last, as Nehemiah focused and turned his attention on repopulating the city of Jerusalem. And there you'll remember that we learn some great truths that God has the right to direct our steps. That there is a great cloud of witnesses who walked by faith to that very truth. Who were captured by the story that God is writing through them and through His Son. Well, here in chapter 8, we have another transition of sorts. We have another transition of sorts because our story up into this point, I know this is all introduction, just bear with me, I'm getting to the reading. We have another transition of sorts here in chapter 8 of Nehemiah because up until this point, really, this story has been about Nehemiah. I mean, Nehemiah has been the main character. Now, we know the story has not been all about Nehemiah. It's been about God's work and about what God is doing through Nehemiah, but Nehemiah has been the main character. He's been the narrator of our story. 1 through 7, chapters 1 through 7, has been a a memoir, a personal journal of sorts. But now, chapter 8, we're introduced to a new character. A new character who's been in Jerusalem for a while, we know that, but we just haven't seen him. Ezra the priest. Ezra the priest comes to the foreground and Nehemiah begins to fade 
to the shadows. Now Ezra's been here. He returned earlier in a previous wave of exiles who returned. We learn all about Ezra in the book entitled Ezra, which precedes our book of Nehemiah, which was one, at one point, it was one book. Ezra and Nehemiah was one complete book. And so we're just picking up again with Ezra, who has been a main character in the previous book of Ezra. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. Listen as I read. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shimei, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah on his right hand. And Padeah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseiah, Kaleida, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Paleah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is the word of the Lord. Does anyone remember the name uh, E.F. Hutton? Yes, E.F. Hutton. E.F. Hutton was a brokerage firm that I think is now owned by uh, Citicorp, if I'm right, 
but I could be easily wrong. Um, but E.F. Hutton ran a series of commercials when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s um, that I think were a great marketing strategy. One of the commercials, for instance, went like this. Two businessmen were walking through an airport terminal, and one says to the other, my broker says that in the long run, that kind of investment could be a good idea. What's your broker say? And the other guy says, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, and then there was a long pause, and everyone in the airport stops and freezes and listens. And then the narrator comes in and says, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. It was a great marketing strategy. Why? Well, because, one, I remember it. And isn't that the point? Isn't that the point that you remember something that is being conveyed? But secondly, because I think they were effective in communicating their point, unlike so many other commercials these days that have nothing to do with the product that they're selling, at least the E.F. Hutton commercials conveyed the point, and that is that E.F. Hutton was someone that was worth listening to, that people wanted to hear what he had to say. And as silly as that was, everyone freezing in the airport terminal to hear what E.F. Hutton said to this man, it communicated the value and the gravity of what was about to be said. It communicated the, the eagerness and the expectancy of the people that wanted to hear what was being said. And I bring it up because it gives us just a taste, just a flavor of what was going on here in Ezra chapter 8. There's really, there's so much for us to think about, to be challenged about in chapter 8. Originally I was going to do it in one sermon, now we've divided it into two. And still, we're going to be late probably today. Um, I have already preached from this pulpit that we here at Ascension, that we as the church of Jesus Christ, are to be people of the book. That the Word of God is the foundation for all that we are. All that we are about. And here in Ezra chapter 8, we see, we are reminded once again of that fact. Because essentially what God's people are doing here in Ezra chapter, or Nehemiah chapter 8, after finishing this wall, after finishing the foundation of the wall, now they are turning to a new foundation. A new foundation that needs to be built. You see, stone and mortar have given them stability. They've given them safety. But now, now, now that they have stability and safety, they need life. They need direction. They need to hear from God. They can't just sit in Jerusalem, enclosed in their walls. They need to hear from God. Great passage for us to think about for a few moments this morning. And I want two truths to guide us. Two simple things. Kids, you can get these as well. 
Kids, if you're taking notes, you can get these truths as well. They're important for you to hear. And the first one is this. God has spoken. We must listen. God has spoken. We must listen. We began our service this morning with our call to worship from Psalm 19. And it was a call to worship that reminded us again of how God reveals Himself to us. And Psalm 19 is a great passage that reminds us of these two categories, these two theological categories that that we use to describe how God reveals Himself to us. General revelation. Special revelation. Those are the theological fancy terms. They're not all that fancy, but those are the terms that we use to describe a passage like Psalm 19. He reveals Himself in what He has made through the grandeur of the sky, through the beauty of the sunset. But you know, not just through the big things, but even through the complexity and the wonder of a musical composition. I saw this week that in the, um, in the dictionary of, or no, the Handbook of Christian Apologetics, which is put out by InterVarsity Press, that um, there is an article in there about various arguments. It goes through 20-some arguments for the existence of God. And one of the arguments I thought was perfect. It, it's, it's, a, it's a simple entry. It's three lines. And it's the argument from aesthetic experience. And here's the three lines. There is the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. Therefore, there must be a God. You either see this or you don't. That's the third line in the handbook of Christian apologetics. But God reveals Himself in the grandeur of the sunset, in the complexity of Bach. But we also learn from Psalm 19 that God speaks to us through His law. God speaks to us through His Word. And so here in Nehemiah chapter 8, when the people hear God's law being read to them, what they are hearing is not some ancient document that is just being dusted off. They are hearing God speak to them. And the people are doing more than just hearing. And that's what I want to think about for a few minutes today. The people are listening Have you ever told your kids that there's a difference between hearing and listening? And I know that many of you, maybe all of you in here, you know this and you believe this, but God God knows that you know this. God knows that you believe it, those of you who do. And yet, He also knows that with so many voices in your world, crying out for your attention, speaking to you, that you need to be reminded. Not just reminded, you need to be encouraged about how to listen, about how to hear God speak. And this passage does it for us. This passage is really an amazing passage, Nehemiah chapter 8. It's the evidence of God's Spirit moving in the life of His people in a way that I pray that we would see. It is a work of grace. We might call it a revival. It's a revival 
of sorts. It's something that we should long for in our own lives. It's something we should long for in the corporate life of this church, in our communities, in the lives of those around us. And it's within that context that I want us to hear and listen this morning as we are stirred by what God shows us through what His people experienced and what they, how they responded, how they reacted. So I want you to notice a few words and a few concepts that flesh this out. The fact that God has spoken, we must listen. First, I want you to notice the eagerness and expectancy of the people. The eagerness and expectancy of the people. Now, Johannes Gutenberg, the inventor of the movable type printing press, has really made it difficult for us to understand, at least to feel, what is going on here in Nehemiah chapter 8. Why do I say that? Because you have in your laps personal copies of God's law. Personal copies of God's Word. And you've had those copies forever. You don't know a day when you haven't had a copy of God's Word, or at least had one accessible to you. You see, here in Nehemiah's day, God's people didn't have God's Word in their hands. They didn't have private copies where they could just hear from the Lord. They needed it to be read to them, and it hadn't been read to them in decades. And i got a homework assignment for you. I want you to go home and I want you to go to YouTube and type in the search Kimyal, K-I-M-Y-A-L, Kimyal New Testament Launch. Kimyal New Testament Launch. As I was thinking about preaching this and I was thinking about God's people and their reception, their eagerness for God's Word to hear from Him, I immediately thought of this video that I had seen. Maybe some of you have already seen it. But I, I typed it in YouTube this week so I could see it again and get a feel, get a feel for what it's like to hear from God. Because it's hard for us to understand. And this is a tribe in, in Papua New Guinea who never has heard from God. They've never had the Word of God translated in their language. And so it is the arrival of God's Word to them as a people, and it is beautiful. And it will bring richness to this passage. Now back to the Israelites. They had returned to the land that was promised to their fathers. They had begun this rebuilding effort that had been blessed beyond measure, had been finished so quickly, and now by God's grace they were hungry to hear from this God who had blessed them, this God who had been so faithful to them. And so they cry out, they call for the book of the law of Moses to be read. Now what is this that they're calling for? Well, we don't know exactly. It could have been the first five books of Moses. It could have been just one of them, maybe Leviticus by itself or Deuteronomy. We don't know exactly what was read. But Ezra obliged their request and their hunger for the truth, their hunger to hear from God, 
And he began to read it. And he began to read it to all who could understand. To all who could understand. I think it's appropriate for us to have our children in here, even today. I've heard this passage used as an argument against having children in worship. But I've also heard it used as an argument for children in worship. And I think it's the latter. I think our kids can understand more than we give them credit for. And so it wasn't just men that gathered in the, in the square. It was men and women and everyone who could understand. Maybe they couldn't understand every jot and tittle, but they could understand something. They could understand that God has spoken. We must listen to Him. Oh, to have such a a longing to hear from God as God's people did hear. The writer of Psalm 119 was one who digested this truth to the very core of his being. Psalm 119 is full of these great verses. 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 119, 111, your testimonies are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. Verse 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. This is, as George Muller, the writer, said, this is food. Food for the inner man. The Word of God. They were eager And they expected God to speak. We need to expect God to speak. We need to expect God to speak when we gather here corporately. When we read His Word, when we sing His praise, when I preach in weakness and inadequacy, God speaks To my heart, He speaks to your heart. On the back table, I put some uh, booklets, some booklets that I gave out, we gave out uh, as elders early uh, last year, I think, and they're called Listen Up. And if you don't have one of those booklets, I'd encourage you to grab one. It reminds us of our stance, and it reminds us of coming into the Lord's house with eagerness and expectancy that God is going to speak. So that's the first thing I want you to notice. But then notice verse 3, that listening continues with attentiveness. Attentiveness. We read in verse 3, He read from it facing the square before the water gate, early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand and all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. The book was what? It was read. It was not acted out. It was not put to song. It was read from early morning until midday. It was read A long time. Five hours. Six hours. It was read. And the people stood. And the people gave their attention. Now what 
what captured their attention? Was it the oratory skills of Ezra? Was it the lights and the smoke that came from underneath the stage? The lasers that gripped their sight? No, there were no gimmicks. There was nothing slick. It was just the fact that they knew what they were hearing. They were hearing God. They were hearing Him speak. Eagerness, expectancy, attentiveness. One more thing. Reverence. Reverence. Notice the reverence that God's people have towards God's Word. They stood. I had you stand today. Some churches stand every week when God's Word is being read. That's not something that's normative in Scripture. We certainly could do that. But I wanted to do it today to get the feel of of standing in respect and honor and submission to God and His Word. And where was it read from? This is an interesting thing as well. It was read from a platform that they had built. Now I'm sure there was some pragmatics of just needing to get Ezra up, needing to get him above everyone so he could see, so he could get some volume across the crowd. But you know, much of our architecture in the church, much of our reason for this very thing that I'm standing behind is because of our understanding of God's Word and our reverence for it. You notice the pulpits are often in the center. They're often raised. Not to exalt the speaker, but to exalt what is being done from behind this pulpit. God is speaking. So the people responded with reverence. And I think this is challenging for us, of course. I immediately thought about Little League for some reason, when I was thinking about this point. I was thinking about the encouragement of uh, my son's first year in Little League and how they're just not ready for the ball out in the field. They are, their stance is not ready to receive what's coming at them. I mean, they're out there picking their nose, chasing butterflies, doing whatever. Not my son, of course. He was down ready. I mean, that was my boy. But other boys, they were a mess. They were a mess. But no, we, I just remember yelling to the, to, the, to the boys, get ready. Get in your stance. Be ready to receive God. Be ready to receive the ball. And I was thinking about even receiving God's Word. Reading it at the dinner table and I confess, sometimes we read it at the dinner table flippantly just to get through it, and we don't hold it in the regard that we need to hold it in as a family. Do we do that as a church? Do we do that as individuals? There's much we could explore there, but are we ready to receive God's Word? Are we receiving it with with reverence? I know that ultimately... The Spirit of God has got to do this in our hearts. The Spirit of God has got to prepare us. But are we doing what we can do to make ourselves ready? 
We have so many voices that, that want to speak to us and, and are vying for our attention. Our focus must begin here in the house of God. And then it extends from this place into our homes, into our families. As we begin our days, hearing from who? Who do we hear from? And how do we hear? Well, let's move on. God has spoken. We must listen. God's people teach us something about what that looks like. But there's another truth. God has spoken. We must be changed. We must be changed. I kind of wanted to do a double negative and say, we cannot be unchanged. But I figured that would be too confusing. We must be changed. You know, James talks about this, doesn't he? He talks about the person who looks at himself in a mirror and then immediately goes away and forgets what he saw. But God's people remind us that when we hear from God, when we hear God's word, we must be changed. You see, the people saw something as they listened to God's word. What is it that the people saw? They saw the holiness of God and they saw the ugliness of their sin. The reality of who they were. The gravity of the law in light of their frailty. And so they began to bawl. They began to weep in despair. And this wasn't mere emotionalism. This wasn't a mountaintop experience. This was true contrition. This was true sorrow. This was, these were tears of grief over lives that had been devoid of God for years. Lives that had lived in rebellion against Him for years. And we know this in part because when we continue in chapter 9, we are going to see a full-on confession, a full-on fleshing out of what the people felt. But I think the point for us this morning is simply that at times this is what the Word does. Particularly in a time of, of revival. This is what God's Word does. And so we shouldn't be surprised at times when God's Word makes us feel terrible. When God's Word makes us feel guilt. Good guilt. We might call it. See, this is part of the character of God's Word. It's a sword. It's sharp. It cuts to our very hearts. And the law specifically, this is one of the reasons the law exists, is to drive us to despair. To drive us to our need. To remind us that we need to be rescued. That we need a Savior. See, if this is the case, if God's Word has this effect, then we need to, to pray for this. We need to pray for this in our own lives. We need to pray for this in our church. But it doesn't end there. This scene continues. It's interesting that Nehemiah, Ezra, and all the Levites, they say something that we might not expect. I mean, God's Word is read. The law is read. The people feel genuine contrition and sorrow. They're weeping. And what do the leaders tell them to do? Stop. 
Stop your moaning. Stop your weeping. Verse 9, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Why? Why do the leaders want God's people to calm down? Isn't this contrition a good thing? Well, yes, it is. But not on this day. See, this day is holy. This day is not just marked by wonderful godly sorrow and renewal within God's covenant community, but this day had been set apart by God. It's the first day of the seventh month. In the Jewish calendar, this is a Sabbath of sorts. This is a a new year. It's a new beginning. It's a prelude that looks to the Day of Atonement, which is right around the corner. Ten days away is the Day of Atonement. And so, it's as if the Lord wants to remind His people of who they are, but immediately say, but don't stay there. Don't stay wallowing. Stop your weeping. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of Yahweh, your covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, is your strength. You see, Nehemiah is assuring the people in the midst of their sorrow and brokenness that they are safe. That they are secure. They have fallen woefully short, yes. They are deserving of God's punishment, yes. But today is a new beginning. Atonement is around the corner. And so rejoice. Go home to your houses with peace in your hearts, with joy in your step. Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that's the message that we need today. That's what we need to be left with. God has spoken. But you know, there's a final word that He has spoken. A final word who's a person. The person of Jesus. And yes, the law stings us. And maybe this morning's sermon and your lack of attentiveness and your your lack of diligence when it comes to, to listening to God's Word and hearing Him speak, maybe that stung you, but the Gospel is the balm on that wound. The law tells us that yes, you have fallen short, but the Gospel reminds us that Jesus hasn't. And the law reminds you that you deserve to die, but the Gospel says that you can live. And the law brings sorrow to your heart, but the Gospel reminds you, have joy, because the Lord has spoken in His Son. Isaiah spoke of this day. Isaiah 12, to behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. And here it is, he uses the phrase that's used here in Nehemiah 8, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, 
and He has become my salvation. People of God, this is the change that needs to occur in you today. Not walking out of here, hanging your head in sorrow and shame, feeling like you just need to try harder and be more attentive to God's Word and give it the attention that it deserves. No. You need to look to the Word made flesh. You need to give attention to the Word, yes, but because of the One who loved you. Because of the One who speaks to you through that Word. You love Him because He first loved you. And just like God's people, you are safe. You are secure. You are loved because of Jesus. So God has spoken. We must listen. Yes, that is true. God has spoken. We must be changed. Yes, that is true. But ultimately, it all comes together in Jesus' final Word. The Word that is Jesus. So look to Him. Fix your eyes on Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning for these truths, for Your Word, which is life to our souls, which is precious beyond measure, which we know ought to be our treasure, and yet so easily we make it one of a number of things that we look to, one of a number of things that we treasure. Oh, Father, may reminding us of the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus, of of the final word that was spoken through the One who has made flesh for us. May that tune our ears in a greater way to not just sing of Your grace as the hymn writer wrote, but to live that grace. To breathe that grace. We are people of the book. We're people of the book because of Jesus. So Father, I pray that You would take Your your Word and impress it upon our hearts. May it find deep root there today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.